Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 19th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So we uh, do have our September issue up at commentary.org. Featuring that amazing lead piece by Yuval Levin we talked about the other day, how we, what we got right in the COVID fight. We also have our own Christine Rosen on the possibility of a parents movement in the United States following the horrors of the last year and a half. We have an astonishing piece by Paul McHugh and Gerard Bradley. Paul McHugh having run uh, the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins for many decades Um about gender dysphoria and transgenderism and uninformed consent relating to teenagers and transitioning. Uh, Joseph Epstein on being the owner of a cat. Um, Ed Kozner on the uh, 30th anniversary of the Crown Heights pogrom. Many, many other things. Great issue. Go to commentary.org and subscribe uh, the horrors continue apace as the Biden administration attempts to explain its way through the debacle. And uh, I guess uh, Exhibit A was the president's interview with George Stephanopoulos yesterday, which maybe was not on the level of uh, Ted Kennedy finding himself unable to answer the question, uh, why do you want to be president? Uh, which helped derail his bid in 1980, um, but it's it's hard to think of a of a presidential self defense that was worse or less competent or more troubling in its applications. So, Abe, let's start with the president uh, saying that uh, he always knew there was going to be chaos. Well, that's to me, I mean, obviously it's not true because we have what he had in fact said before the chaos started, um, which was that he doesn't, you know, see um, um, some horrific Saigon like outcome befalling the U S. So we we know he, he didn't always think there was going to be chaos, but um, even if he did, this, uh, this falls into the category of, um, kind of a self-indictment. If, if, if we're in the midst of a policy that the American president knew for certain was going to be chaotic, then why, why are we doing it? So it's, it's, um, he just doesn't know what to say. I don't think there's, a, there's much he can say. He's, if, no matter what approach he takes he's he's indicted so here's what he said literally uh stephanopoulos asks him so you don't think this could have been handled this exit could have been handled better in any way no mistakes no says the president i don't think it could have been handled in a way that we're going to go back in hindsight and look but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. And then Stephanopoulos says, so for you, that was always priced into the decision. Yes, Biden said, then amended his answer. Now, exactly what happened, I've not priced in, but I knew that they are going to have an enormous look. One of the things we didn't know is what the Taliban would do in terms of trying to keep people from getting out what they would do. What are they doing now? They're cooperating, letting American citizens get out, American personnel get out, embassies get out, etc. But they're having, we're having some more difficulty having those who helped us when we were in there. Um, so he said it was priced in, then he said it wasn't priced in. He said he doesn't know how there wouldn't be chaos and the phrasing is important. The idea that somewhere, somehow, there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing. Well, so that that raises the question. Uh, 
the way to do it without casting suing was not to get out. Right, Noah? Yeah, uh, that would be ideal. Um, look, the problem is that this is what Joe Biden wanted. Um, this is all what Joe Biden wanted, and he still wants it. Uh, I think we're probably going to go a little bit more into detail about the press conference, a disastrous, disheartening, demoralizing press conference from <clears throat> Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Mark Milley in more detail than we should. Um, but they made it quite plain that this is the operation that Joe Biden approved. He would not approve of any other option. He will not approve of any contingency plan to mitigate this ongoing disaster. Uh, he will not address uh, his responsibilities, his duties as a president to the people who have an American passport in their pocket or to say nothing of our uh, special immigrant visa holders and special immigrant visa eligibles and our allies and people on the ground. We have 600 Afghans who are fighting with us right now to try to secure this airport, uh, former Afghan National Army soldiers, the very people who Joe Biden outrageously slandered as people who were not willing to fight for their own country, who would not exercise just the basic competence required to, re to secure their own futures. Um, and even today, we are you know, dealing with this ongoing crisis. This crisis is not resolvable. And brass doesn't have any, any uh, wherewithal to uh, secure facilities that could exfiltrate citizens in a more competent and timely manner. This is what Joe Biden wanted. And I said this on Twitter and I got a lot of flack for it and I will defend it to, to I will defend it aggressively. This is the worst dereliction of, from a president that I've seen in my lifetime. I was born in 1981 and in my 40 years, I have not seen anything approaching this level of irresponsibility, this maladministration, um, uh, with and such abject contempt for the duties and responsibilities of a commander in chief. Uh, it is horrific and is only going to get worse. And until this administration backs off its artificial political timetable for operations here, um, it, it's 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 going to be uh, maybe the worst foreign policy disaster. Uh, in the post-war period for the United so, States. So um, the the thing that everybody was saying last week, of course, was uh, that were you know as things were unfolding, was that this was like Saigon in 1975. And Walter Russell Mean made the point that the proper analogy is to Tehran in 1979. Obviously, we were not at war in Tehran. We did not have military forces in Tehran. Um, but where where this is reminiscent, and you said you were born in 81, so this was 79, 80, was uh, the sense of the uh, political administration um, being stunned into a kind of paralysis by the, uh, by the speed, the celerity with which events took place at the end of 1979, which did not just involve the Iranians taking our taking the hostages but also the soviets invading afghanistan and uh news or fears that there was a soviet brigade in cuba all three came at the tail end of 1979 and jimmy carter was set on his heels uh it was a terrible period in which he and his people clearly had no idea what on earth to do with the cascade of troubles that had befallen them. So this is a much less, at this moment, this is a much less uh, horrifying period, in part because you don't have it all happening on all fronts, and, uh, and an economy in terrible shape, and various other things all kind of you know cascading all together. But we do have COVID and we do have this. Okay, but can I, t you yeah. asked a question earlier. You said, what could he have said in this interview? And a real leader would could have said and should have said, you know what? We misjudged this situation. We misjudged it badly. We are now in a, in a moment of crisis and we have to rethink how we are doing this. It is an absolute falsehood that there is nothing that our government and our military can do to help both the Americans and our Afghan allies in Afghanistan right now. The French and the British are already sending uh, elite troops into the city in armored vehicles to fetch their citizens and bring them to safety. And we are not doing that. Why aren't we doing that? 
why isn't Biden authorizing those kinds of activities to save the people in this, at least in, in Kabul, which we know where they are, contact them, find out where they are, bring them to safety at the airport. We're not doing that. And he is is absolutely temperamentally unsuited to this moment. He is stubborn. He is angry. You can see the anger in his face when he's asked a question he doesn't like. His jaw tenses up. He gets really annoyed. It's it's in a, and a couple of people have noted it's kind of Trumpian, but it's different. His stubbornness right now is allowing him to shut out any sort of alternative way of thinking about the situation, retooling, acknowledging a mistake and making things better. He won't do yeah. it. You haven't even talked about the soundbite that will haunt this presidency that came out of this interview. Which one? Uh, the That was four or five days ago, man. Right, right. It was two days <laughs> of, ago. Yeah. It was two days ago, two days uh, ago. of which he was prompted right. um, to react to people falling out of the sky from, you know, 1,000, 1,500 feet as they cling desperately to uh, American uh, United States Air Force planes as they take off, uh, summarily abandoning this country to which we had 20 years of promises you know, this this ju- just paragon of empathy, this warm ball of white glowing light just got really bitter and angry Callous. and dropped the facade. Yeah. And so that was four or five days ago, man. President Tommy Vitor, you know, just dismissed dismissed uh, the, the, the pain that was on display here and the anguish and the, the abject failure of American foreign policy in the most visceral image you can possibly imagine. That soundbite will not go away for the duration of this presidency. And one other thing that he said in that interview that I think also they, they should rethink is the focus. They're moving the goalposts already here. They're saying, oh, we have this August 31st deadline. Maybe we'll extend that to get the Americans out. He's already rhetorically abandoned our Afghan allies. He's just not even talking about them anymore. He's only talking about the Americans they've left behind now. And that's a subtle shift, but it's one we should keep our eye on because all those people with SIV uh, applications in the works and the people who are now trapped in Afghanistan who wanted to get out are not going to get our help. That's what he's signaling. Look, Trump, on August 4th, 2020, asked by Axios's Jonathan Swan, Uh, how he could say that the virus was under control when a thousand Americans were dying every day said, uh, it is what it is. They are dying. That's true. And you you have, it is what it is, but that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. And uh, that of course, I think was a, a signal moment that helped explain Trump's eventual defeat was, uh, he was saying, what 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 can I do? You know, it is what it is. We're doing what we can. Uh, you know, all he had to say was, "Our heart, our heart bleeds," um, and our entire government is is doing everything that it can to come up with a vaccine, to do this, to do that. And every moment of every day, we are cognizant of the of the toll and the tragedy and the horror that is being visited on our people. And he would have been just fine. It was the saying, it is what it is, that revealed a kind of emotional callousness that uh, I think told with for those independent voters who fled Trump to Biden. And Biden saying that was four or five days ago is exactly the same impulse. It's like, don't you be pushing that button with me. You know, it is what it is. What could I, it was four or five days ago. There aren't people climbing into, you know, into uh, wheel wells on planes right now, or not that I've heard. Um, And yeah, I think that is, it's both telling and it is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, provides a window into what it is that we're dealing with here, Abe. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think... um apart from the disastrous nature of this policy and the tragedy that is going to continue to befall uh, uh, the Afghanis and the Americans over there, something momentous is happening, I think, in that I think Americans are changing their understanding of Biden throughout this. He's really um, very clearly becoming. I don't mean. I don't mean becoming a different guy. If if you've all, if you've never sort of thought of him as this um, uh, uh, ball of empathy, but um, I think they are. Uh, the country is seeing him as a different guy. Um, not only so unfeeling, um, so absentee, and I think weird, odd. He's behaving eccentrically uh, uh, through this uh, in a combination of his absence, uh, his um, 
sort of uh, uh, d- denial to the, to the point of delusion, or at least seeming delusion. Um, his, his extreme callousness, um, his uh, being shut off to any questions, um, uh, aside from the the arranged uh, interview with Stephanopoulos. Um, he's becoming a very strange figure atop this whole thing. I mean, I think we need to talk about that because... We, uh, you know, almost from the moment that Trump became president, there was this notion afloated because I think no one I both talked about it on Morning Joe in 2017 that the 25th Amendment should be invoked against Trump because he was a crazy person, right? And that 25th Amendment provides this very complicated method by which the presidency can essentially be taken away from the president for a bit by his aides as he is being evaluated on the question of whether or not he is competent to be the president. And it's a, you know, it's very complicated, but it was like a happy, happy talking point. Right. So uh, here we have Biden. um, He, uh, uh, you know, this uh, momentous thing happens. He goes to Camp David. He doesn't say anything. He comes back. He gives one statement on COVID. He gives an interview to George Stephanopoulos. He goes back out of town in the middle of a colossal American foreign policy crisis. He goes back to his house in Delaware. Now, granted, look, the president of the United States is never really on vacation. Like the White House travels with him. He, you know, can have any conversation with anybody he wants and all of that. That is that is very true. But um there was this absolutely startling detail about the number of interviews that he's given since he was president, which I believe is nine. He's been president for seven months. Over this time period, uh, Trump had given 60 or something like that, and Obama had given more than 100 interviews. Now, you can't, that's not a, that's not an important number, how much the president massages the press or wants to talk and all that isn't indicative of his mental state, but the absolute absence of any engagement between Biden and anybody who can ask him a question. I'm sorry. Like it raises very, this is, I think what Abe is referring to when he says that this is eccentric, like he disappears. He doesn't say anything. His press secretary has a, I'm on vacation message on her phone in the middle of the worst foreign policy crisis in 15 years. And he gives one interview and then goes back to Delaware and goes into his basement. And let's face it, he responds to everything resembling a legitimate question as if it is a personal attack that he cannot handle and how dare you. Um, there's not there's not one straightforward response to a serious question. Well, and all of the things that all the press conferences he has done, let's let's note, have had pre-selected people in the audience anyway. They're very they're they're using COVID as an excuse to actually select friendly reporters to put in the press pool who can then ask him questions. And he has not asked unscripted questions very often. I can't remember the last time he got a, an unscripted question that he responded to without looking at his cards or, you know, sort of changing the subject. It is very weird. It is weird. So, yeah. Oh, here's the count. Okay. This is Mark Knoller, uh, who was the longtime White House reporter, was with CBS News for decades, the longest serving White House reporter. Um, uh, President Biden sat for his ninth news interview. Uh, yesterday with, Ste- you know, his second with Stephanopoulos. Trump, at this point, 50, Obama, 113. Um, and, you know, the careful curation, Christine said this yesterday, like the careful curation of Biden during COVID was a brilliant political strategy, right? He didn't have, he would, there were no rallies. He wasn't going around every day. He wasn't doing all of that. He was in his basement. He came up and he came down whatever he wanted to. And, and, and that was, you know, him basically allowing Trump and Trump foolishly took the bait, allowing Trump to remain the focus of all attention, positive and negative. And Trump, you know, Trump himself could have said, look, I can't be out, you know, like having rallies every day of the week. I, I here trying to run the COVID response and save lives or something like that to do that kind of thing. 
use a rose garden strategy of his own. Like this is the first time a, a you know a, uh, a a rival has used a rose garden strategy. Like the you know the the you know the contender, not the incumbent, and and Trump fell for it because he couldn't resist not just being plant smack dab in the center of everything, and 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 paid the price for it. But there is nobody else. There is nobody else but Biden here. And now uh, we should talk a little about what, you know, what Noah's chomping at the bit to talk about, which is the other people in the administration who are being asked to carry the specific water for the specific policy, right? We've had Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan in the last couple of days looking very foolish, and we can talk about the ways in which they look foolish. You know, if if, if you have a bad hand to play, you know, you can... It's very hard to play well, and they have a bad hand to play. But then we have uh, General Milley, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who appeared yesterday. Noah, please have at it. Yeah, it, it will be a, a struggle to summarize <clears throat> what was the most dispiriting display from American brass and civilian Pentagon leadership I have ever seen. Um, but I'll do my best. Uh, the... Secretary Austin said, you know, pressed on multiple occasions uh, as to whether or not, you know, we had any capability to, for example, expand the footprint out from uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport, where Americans are told to make it to by any means necessary, whatever you can do. And if you can't go to ground, the embassy has said we cannot guarantee your safety. So go there insofar as it's possible. Um, According to General Austin, quote, we don't have the capability to go out and collect large numbers of people, unquote. Uh, Pressed again, uh, quote, I don't have the capability to go out and extend operations currently into Kabul. Quite unlike the French and the freaking British, we just can't execute that kind of operation. Um, Quote, we know that we have the right, we know that we've got to have the right mix of capabilities on the ground. We don't want to put excessive materials on the ground that are not relevant to what we're doing. Um, that was a response to whether or not they need a larger uh, footprint um, and uh, in order to execute this mission. Um, and the mission is, is not executable at present, given our, our present state. Uh, and... Um, uh, and at another point, uh, General Milley, I think, was pressed by a, a reporter uh, about why uh, they sacrificed uh, Bagram Air Base. Uh, first of all, he said, you know, they generally believe that it was a, quote, tactical solution in accordance with the mission set that we were given and in accordance with getting troop numbers down to about 600 or 700 number, which means that the reason why we decided to make our operations dependent upon KIA is because somebody in either civilian or military leadership and probably all of the above, but most likely the president of the United States said, this is what you get. You get this teeny tiny little footprint and that's all you have. And you cannot defend Bagram air base with that teeny tiny little footprint. You certainly can't create a safe corridor from Kabul to um, Bagram with that footprint. So this is what they had to do. They're working within the constraints that the president has imposed on them. When asked why they wouldn't retake Bagram, Millie just melted down. He stuttered and stumbled. Good question, he said. Great question, but I'm not going to discuss branches and sequels off our current operation. I'll just leave it at that. Um, you could tell that he wanted to do this, but he is simply unable to do it. And lastly, and the most in the most gut wrenching uh, display that I have seen, an emotional moment from uh, Secretary Austin. He said, "We're going to get everybody, everyone that we can possibly evacuate, evacuated." And I'll do that as long as we possibly can until the clock runs out or we run out of capability. I have never heard an American in a position like the Secretary of Defense say that your citizenship just don't really matter. We put you in this position, especially this is an engineered crisis that the American government created. And if you're trapped in that crisis... Well, you got a limited amount of time because, you know, it would look really politically disadvantageous for this president if we were to actually extend operations beyond the 31st or worst after September 11th when the Taliban has said their beneficence runs out and they just may execute strikes on American soldiers. And that would be terrible. So, you know, until we run out of capability or until we, you know, until the the president's political timetable is upon us, you know, you, you might have a chance, but after that, 
you're screwed. And that's it's basically saying thousands of American soldiers. Look, the easy part is upon us now. Tens of thousands of Americans are being evacuated from this airport. Those are the people in American custody. We don't know how many people are outside American custody. Thousands. They estimate thousands. Any one of whom could become a hostage. They, they essentially are already hostages tying the hands of American policymakers. And look, Joe Biden said, you know, this, this timetable isn't uh, operative anymore in this ABC News interview, but that's just the 31st. What about this 9-11 timetable that the Taliban has set dictating the tempo of our operations? The Taliban is dictating terms to us. And this is the sort of thing that this president wants. He could authorize an operation tomorrow. Big one, 30,000 troops, close air support, a lot of vehicles. It would take a lot, but we could actually get Americans out of this country. He won't do it because he doesn't want to. And and it's especially I have to say I agree with Noah that when Austin spoke yesterday it was it was kind of it was both sad and chilling because he was centcom commander. He knows exactly what can be done and what should be done in that region to get our people and our allies out. He knows. He's a general. He knows how to do this. His hands are tied. Um and and that's the end of it. I will the other thing I'll note to the hostage point We've now frozen. Is it we've frozen um, Taliban assets, Afghan money um, in in banks across the world? How do you think the Taliban is going to think through how to get some of that money unfrozen? What leverage might they have post nine eleven deadline to extract from the Western governments that control the freezing of those assets? They have hostages. I mean, and they, frankly, that assumes such a transfer has not already occurred. Right. Okay. And I but, don't believe that. I believe but, that we've already executed such a transfer. Tactically and strategically, this is madness because the simple fact of the matter is we are not going to strand thousands of Americans in Afghanistan. This will not be uh, sustainable should this get to that point, you know, in the near future. We are, there will be a massive public demand to say we spend Six hundred billion dollars a year on the military. We have the world's greatest military. We're the most powerful force in the world. In 1904, one American was kidnapped by one warlord in Asia, and the entire world's foreign policy pivoted on the question of whether or not it was going to be Petacaris alive. That was the American, or Ryasuli dead. That was the warlord. One person, and we weren't even the hegemon yet. The public will not allow this to happen. So what we're doing now is degrading our capabilities over time. We could do it right now. We could send in 15,000 people right now to go into Kabul and elsewhere and get those Americans and get them out and then leave next week. We're apparently not going to do that, which means that we're going to have to do it in September or October when our position is is significantly worse and when the possibility of horrible clashes with Afghan forces are going to be significantly greater. This is idiocy on a monumental scale. And it gets back to this question of what Biden wanted and what it is like to deal with him if you work for him. And we've been through four years of this with Trump. We've been through all of the leaks, all of the talk about people saying he won't listen, he's nuts, he's an idiot, you know, Rex Tillerson saying he's a moron, uh, you know, Mattis saying he's crazy, whatever, all of that. We're not hearing any of that from the Biden people, but he's like, we're getting out. And they're like, okay, well, we could do this. And he's like, no, 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 we're getting out, we're getting out, we're getting out. We're not staying out if Americans get taken hostage. We are not going to stay out. I want to, I mean, this is a very important, I'm pressing this and pressing this now so that people who are listening get this. We are not leaving thousands of Americans stranded in Afghanistan. We're just making it a lot harder for us to deal with them when we don't do it right now. You know, and what's more, if we did it right now, we might have a bit of a Dunkirk moment. I mean, I'm not, I, I think that it's a disgrace that we've gotten to this point and that we have, of course, as you know, I've been saying all week, 
Biden made a choice he didn't have to make. He pulled a Band-Aid off a wound that is not healed and is causing a crisis that was unnecessary. However, if we could execute a, if we could execute a sort of heroic rescue of the Americans there, the country might feel a little better about our military, what it does, all the amount, of, all the money that we spend on it, and and how we and how we go about dealing with the world, which is don't screw with us. We decided to pull out for our own reasons. Now you're going to screw with us and make it impossible for our people to get to the airport. No, we're we're going in. We're getting them out, and then you and your people can rot there in Afghanistan for all I care. That actually might make the country feel better about what's just happened instead of what we're going to feel like, which is we're going to go in and then we're going to have to like fight street by street to get our people out. So let me, let me, let me take a second to talk to you about uh, our, our new sponsor this week, uh, Raycon uh, Everyday Earbuds. Um, Look, everybody's, you know, looking for a good way to set your own music, to deal with your own, uh, you know, uh, audio program. If you're listening to a podcast, you might be listening to them through earbuds. Raycon Everyday Earbuds are pretty great. Uh, and I just got mine yesterday, and I spent half an hour using them, and I was really, really, really impressed. They are the best way to listen. They come with a whole different bunch of gel tips for your comfort, and unlike some other brands, they don't stick out of your ears. They sit right in there very comfortably. I tested different ones of these uh, of these uh, gel gel tips uh, to get the exact right size for me, which is really great because, you know, that doesn't happen necessarily. The case is really, really pretty. It's black, um, easier to spot in some ways than other uh, colored uh, uh earbud cases. They have a 32-hour battery life, so you can listen to what you want when you want for a really long time. And they started half the price of other premium audio brands while sounding just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee, so you really can't lose. Give them a try. You'll see what I mean. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon. Right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash commentary. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycons by Raycon.com slash commentary. Um, can, can I, can we spend one, one quick second on the other kind of absolutely ridiculous statements coming out of the Biden administration, <clears throat> Blinken uh, and uh, UN ambassador, Linda uh, Greenfield Thomas, Thomas Greenfield, I always uh, can, uh, I think confuse it's, her name, um, yeah. about how they're really calling with very firm words and statements on the Taliban to respect the rights of women and girls. This is enraging. I mean, we, we know the Taliban is not going to respect the rights of women and girls. It is currently not respecting the rights of women and girls. It does not acknowledge that women and girls have rights because operating under Sharia law, as they interpret it, Women don't have the same rights as men. This is another one of those ways in which it, it feels almost propagandistic. These statements that they, these kind of rosy statements, like we're we, we just want to make sure you understand that we all respect women's rights, we all respect the rights of these girls to an education, while on the ground doing absolutely the opposite of that with our actions. Um, and I think that's another thing that in, in uh, the not too distant future, as more reports unfortunately and tragically come in of what women in Afghanistan will be suffering under this regime. Um, the administration will have to answer for those empty words and those empty promises after 20 years of, of young women in, in that country being able to do things like hold a job and get an education. I mean, it does have this quality of, you know, the, the joke about the, the British tourist, uh, you know, at some restaurant in Provence being upset with the service and saying in French, I'm going to write a stern letter to the Times. I mean, we have these tweets like Anthony Blinken saying, we expect the Taliban to protect the civil rights of, of girls. It's like, oh, really? Can I read his oh, tweet? We, we called to, yeah, he said 12 hours ago, uh, Blinken tweeted, together with our international partners, we call on those in positions of power and authority across Afghanistan to guarantee the protection of women and girls and their rights. We will monitor closely how any future government ensures their rights and freedoms. He did not say Taliban. Those in positions of power and authority. That's a really wordy way to avoid saying the Taliban. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why, 
uh, we're so freaked out. Uh, and every now and then it's worth rehearsing this is that it's not just that, you know, enormous numbers of Afghanis never lived under the Taliban jackboot, but that a lot of Americans under the age of, you know, 25 or 30 don't know anything about what the Taliban were like. And when I say that this is one of the most evil regimes that the world has ever seen, I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, this is not me, you know, like talking like Trump about anything that he didn't like. I mean, the world or the civilized world reared in horror years before, years before Al-Qaeda started striking out from Afghan territory. Seventh uh, century uh, Buddhist statues were destroyed by the Taliban as being, you know, as being works of of idolatry. Uh, women, uh, were, it was illegal for women to get educations. They could not walk outside without being covered by burqas. Stoned to death if accused of adultery and their fingers right. chopped off if they wore nail polish. Right. And uh, sessions in stadia where there were public executions by the hundreds while crowds were encouraged to watch and men rode in to the stadium on motorcycles and beheaded people with machetes while they stood tied to poles. This is who they were. If you want a fictional portrait of the Taliban in real time, go read Hosseini's The Kite Runner, go rent the movie of The Kite Runner. That's sort of like the, that's the, you know the easiest way to sort of get a sense of the of the horror that we're talking about. I mean, maybe people uh, have read, uh, you know, have happened to be among the people who've read, you know, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, Dickens, you know, which is actually the most the best read novel of the last two hundred and fifty years uh, or one hundred and fifty or whatever it is. And he, um, you know, the last third of that novel is this amazing uh, fictional recreation. 50 years after the fact of what life was like under the Jacobins during the great terror. It's one of the great works of imaginative literature uh, in, in the Western canon. Um, and this all happened in real time while Hosseini was writing the kite runner. Like this wasn't Dickens going back and using sources and to whatever to, to, to recreate this. Uh, this was almost a documentary depiction of this, nightmare regime and they are now back in power and they a lot of them spent time under the american you know as 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 prisoners of the united states prisoners that they are hardened they are angry they are older there's no reason to think that they are wiser they have succeeded in getting what they wanted from the enemy that they had targeted and uh any idea that somehow this is gonna this is they're more mature and they're talking in more mature ways. Graham Wood of the, of the Atlantic has a really powerful piece in which he reminds uh, people how the Taliban, when they took power in the nineties said, you know, they wanted everybody to come together and it was all going to be wonderful. And they were going to have a meeting with the outgoing uh, prime minister Nazarullah and they did. And what they did was they cut off his genitals and they stuffed him in his throat and they hanged him in the pu- in a public square. That was, that's who they are. I, I, I just want to say, well, I just want to say, you know, in light of the talk about how Biden and this administration is, is being, is giving it to us straight about, you know, they're sort of treating the American people like adults uh, this time around, t- you know, telling us what, but, you know, giving us the truth on Afghanistan, the, the hard truth. Um, this is um, completely betrayed by the the embarrassing attempt to um, pretend that that the Taliban are anything other than uh, just w- what you described. Um, and- of all the things they are sugarcoating. That that's 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 the main one and most despicable one. They're pretending that there's a ray of hope um, for for this monstrous uh, organization. Yeah, and much like the inexplicable refusal to approve a, a rescue mission sufficient to actually execute that mission, um, 
uh, Joe Biden was asked by George Stephanopoulos, do you believe the Taliban have changed? Which is this weird refrain that we see only in the, the very elite press. And Joe Biden says the following, quote, I think they're going through a sort of existential crisis about do they want to be recognized by the international community as being a legitimate government? The answer to that is no. If he believes that, he's delusional. If he doesn't and wants you to believe it, he's derelict. There are no two options here. And the bottom line is, this is at best you could say that this is an effort at expediency, that we need the beneficence of the Taliban to support our mission, get us out and get out as fast as humanly possible. And so we will bribe them. We will, you know, fillet them. We will do whatever necessary to make this happen. And we're doing it. And as we've seen, the images outside of this airport, this is a very tenuous ceasefire here between our forces and their forces. We are on top of each other and they are seeking to execute a disaster. What they do every night is they they round up civilians, they whip them, they beat them, they fire ammunition into the air. They're terrifying families. The images of children, young children, who are just being abused by this militia that is seeking to execute some sort of a crowd uh, a disaster. The crowd gets whipped up and charges at American forces and we're responsible for it. That's what they want. That's what they're trying to execute. And the longer we stay there, the longer this this really untenable status quo holds, the more likely that becomes uh, and, and so we've decided that all, the only strategy here, and I'm just being generous here by applying a strategy to it, the only strategy here is to uh, pretend as though they're this legitimate governing entity that only wants re- the recognition of the international community in order to facilitate our our exfiltration of these civilians. But that's going to take weeks at the present present schedule. So it's just, and it's inevitable that this will break down. Look, this is a world historical triumph for the Taliban. This notion that they're sitting there worrying about their international reputation. They just sat. They were thrown out of the country by the world's most powerful military. And they waited us out. And they've taken the country back after being in Gitmo, after being in hellhole Afghan prisons, the likes of which we can't even possibly imagine they're sitting there worried about their reputation. They have just done something that no one has ever accomplished before. They, this one group, I'm not talking about the Afghans, you know, throwing out the throwing out the Russians. This one group was 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 extirpated from power. And it did not dissolve, it did not, you know, commit suicide. It went nowhere. It stayed and it fixed its purpose, and it kept to its, it's held to its guns. It got people out. Obama sent sent Taliban home from Gitmo. The number two guy in the Taliban is somebody who was in our custody until 2014, and is now going to be murdering people. Why on earth wouldn't they think that Allah has now has delivered them into power, and that it is for them to work their will however they want? What, wouldn't that be the lesson you would take? Not, oh no, Anthony Blinken is worried. Anthony's threatening us because we're not going to be nice to women. They think Anthony Blinken is a eunuch. They think Anthony Blinken is a They think Anthony Blinken is a contemptible worm, lower than anything else on earth, because he let them do this when they know perfectly well that if we had been more savage and more uncaring or whatever it was, that we would have obliterated them. We would have cut off their genitals, stuffed them in their mouths, and hung them at Gitmo. That's If they were us, that's what they would do. They are not us. They don't care about women. They don't care about the international community. And they are on top of the world, literally, Abe. The idea that they care what the international community thinks of them. The Taliban exists to defy the international community, which they find repulsive and disgusting and uh, made up of infidels. They are they they exist to be a, an entire a, a, to 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 uh, to be um, the force that stands against this thing that that Anthony Blinken is supposing they want to be in the good graces of. It is the most preposterous statement you can imagine. Like there are you know, some the, aspiring uh, internationalists. I mean, it of reminds course, me. they just want to be observing members of the WHO. Right. 
they really want to see it at UNESCO. But I mean, not not to take this to you know, like like uh, you know, to, to to go to a totally unserious place, but you know, it's like that moment in Ghostbusters when somebody says to Dan Aykroyd, you know, do something, do something, and then Dan Aykroyd says, "Gozer the Gozerian," you know, uh, as, as a representative of the city. County and state of New York, I command you back to your, you know, your alternate dimension. And then Bill Murray says, yeah, that ought to do it, Ray. Right. Right? I mean, it's like, it's like, Taliban, please observe the niceties as laid out by the New York Times editorial page. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to do that. We know what the Taliban thinks of that, but what as Americans should we think of our leaders right now if they are saying these things? They know. They know what we know. They're not, I mean, they're not stupid. They're feckless, but not stupid. So they are either cynically trying to cover their own butts for what they know is to come to say, well, we told them, we warned them, look, we have this nice UN statement, or they really are that foolish. They really are that foolish. And either of those options is not a good one if you're an American looking at this situation right now. They are not in charge of anything right now. Um, you know, there's all this talk about Biden resigning, right? I mean, all this talk. I mean, it's all foolish because, of course, he's not going to resign. But Eric Erickson has an interesting thing about how Biden should resign. People are saying Biden should resign. Uh, should he? I mean, uh, do we want Kamala Harris as president? Like, let, let's 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 get let's go through the scenarios here. Biden somehow is twenty fifth amendmented or resigns. Uh, where's Kamala Harris? You know, she was having a public meeting last Thursday, and she had to cut it short because there was a briefing on Afghanistan, and nobody knows where she is either. Nobody knows where she is. We don't know where she's at. I don't care she's where she is. She's about to go to I, Asia, right? She has a foreign trip on Friday, I think. She's going yeah. overseas. Indonesia, yeah. I want to say. I'm not sure. Look, I don't care where she is. I, 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 As far as I'm concerned, she could go to Club Med or, you know, like, she could go to that hotel in the White Lotus and just stay there for four years for all the good she does this country. And so every time she opens a mouth, she humiliates herself and says something stupid about women. Whatever. Uh I don't want to, you know, a fantastic detail on that in Christine's piece and commentary about the parents movement, by the way, uh, Kamala and and the kinds of things she says about parents not being a parent herself. Um, but, uh, you know, this this is, we, we've got turtles all the way down. Like, I, you know, uh, Biden goes and there's Kamala. And then there is this question about the grownups in the administration, right? The grownups in the administration, to be fair, and I really do believe this, there's always a lot of feckless talk about how you want pe- people should resign. They should resign in protest. They should resign in protest because they can't handle these things. And it's, you know, they need to show that they're, this is very much a British or, you know, this is a, this is very much a, a parliamentary idea because when people resign from office in, you know, in, in, in parliamentary systems, they're still in the political sphere. They're still members of parliament. They still participate in the political process. They're not losing a job that then removes them from politics and just simply makes them a pundit. In the American system, the question here is, I mean, I just don't think you can blame Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan or Admiral Milley or or Lloyd Austin. This is Biden's policy. Well, and- so we honestly don't know that. We really should just reserve a little bit of judgment there as to whether or not the president is responsible for all this. I say he's responsible for most of it, and most certainly he has a responsibility to address it and resolve these the, the conditions over which he's presiding. But did the Pentagon approve of this? Of course they did. Of course they did. Of course the president or the, the Pentagon approved of this operation and the very small footprint and the, and the use of KIA and limiting access to the North Gate. All that stuff, that's operational. President didn't decide that. There's a lot of fathers responsible for this debacle. So we can't just say that, you know, they're they're absolved of all blame. The intelligence community, they're covering I'm their not... butts everywhere they can. I don't trust a word coming out of anybody's mouth, one of these sources close to the intelligence officials. None of that moves me at all. A lot of this administration is responsible for what we're witnessing here. The president has a responsibility to it, resolve it. And this is certainly something he wants based only on the lethargy he's displaying and resolving it. Um, but I, I bet you everybody owns a piece of this thing. Uh, 
All I mean is that, you know, double time, they should stay there uh, and, and, and clean up the mess they made. I mean, the funny part about resigning is you resign if you lose the confidence of the president, right? That's why you need to resign. You lose the confidence of the president. He needs you out because you can no longer perform the duties that he has assigned you. They're performing the duties he assigned them. They're I mean, strenuously covering for him in front of the media that he refuses to engage with. Well, that's, you know, again, you can't, you know, that that is, the, you know, that's the nature of the beast of our political system. Like, what are they supposed to do? Attack him from the podium? They don't attack him from the, they call Bob Woodward and they attack him uh, from, from the Bob Woodward perspective. No, that was know? an indictment of Biden, not of them. Like, they're doing right. the job that yeah. they were, that they, as you say, they're, they're right. required to do. But where is he in all right. this? He's letting right. them take all the flag right. and he's refusing to engage with the press. It has utterly derailed Congress, by the way. Uh, and I expected a little bit more when he, when the president came out yesterday and delivered this speech on COVID and COVID response, which was utterly unequal to the moment. Um, I expected a, a, a few more Democrats to jump ship and, and get really squeamish about what we're seeing here. We didn't see that, but we did see uh, Nancy Pelosi commit to a variety of briefings, uh, call for a bipartisan commission, um, you know, real investigations into what went wrong here. Um, so, I mean, if the if the thought process here, and I wouldn't put it past them, that if the thought process here is, well, we can't commit to rescuing Americans because, God, what will that do to the reconciliation bill? I really genuinely believe that's what they think. Mm-hmm. And not doing anything is imperiling the, the domestic agenda far more than doing something. Can we spend, let's spend the last three or four minutes on COVID because two, a couple of interesting things are going on here. Uh, there's this talk of the, the, you know, of the booster shots, which people were saying was going to happen of a certainty when the vaccination regime began. And yet we're, again, in this, we're suddenly having some nonsense debate over whether or not there should be booster shots or we should be sending them to Tanganyika or I, I don't know what the hell it is. And and, and Trump uh, never won to miss an opportunity to make everything worse. Goes on uh, Maria Bartiromo's show and says Pfizer only wants profit from the boosters. Like, thanks a lot yet again for your service in a having yes you did a fantastic thing doing operation warp speed and thanks a lot for your effort in destroying the effectiveness of operation warp speed that's really great every now and then over the last 48 hours when i think oh my god you know look what happened here you know would this have happened when trump was president i have no idea what would have happened when trump was president but um you know the fact that he is you know, he has now decided to serve service his base by pandering to anti-vax sentiment almost now openly. Uh, I think is 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 really disgraceful. Nonetheless, so so there's the booster thing. Add to the booster thing this very interesting development. Mitch McConnell came out yesterday and said flatly, and I assume that he, you know, had somebody double and triple check this data, that 97% of the people in the United States hospitalized with COVID currently are unvaccinated. 97%, right? We've had the surge of hospitalizations. 97% of them are unvaccinated. We have now been in the Delta period for six weeks, I think at least. 97%, which means that the breakthrough infection problem is non-existent. I mean, you feel sick from it, and that's bad, and I'm sorry if you get sick from it the way I'm sorry if you get sick from the flu or strep or something like that. No one is going to the hospital. 3% of the cases involve, obviously, breakthrough uh, vaccinations, uh, breakthrough, breakthrough infections. 3% out of 100%. Uh, and... If that's the case, then we're still in this place where we are acting as though it's 20% or 25% and that we need to have mitigation strategies to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated or the vaccinated from the vaccinated. And every piece of data we have now suggests otherwise. And then I just want to finish this rant with this detail. Jacinda Ardern, the much-celebrated Prime Minister of New Zealand, has locked the country down. People are told they cannot go 50 meters from their house. 
There will be 5,000 pound fines or whatever currency the hell it is that they have in New Zealand, 5,000 Kiwi fines. Um, uh, They have forced the pullout from New Zealand of this Lord of the Rings TV series, which is going to bring $200 million in revenue to New Zealand because of this. One case, one case of the Delta variant. She has shut the country down entirely. And Bob Wachter, one of the one of the hero doctors that we go to to hear what we should do about COVID in this terrible period, has just tweeted this. Please watch this Jacinda Ardern press conference. It's fact based. It's serious. And she says that yes, you can let your child go out on their scooter. So that's really noble of her. So we have a public health. We, now, this whole thing about how uh, there's an entire world of public opinion that says that COVID, we need to have COVID zero, no infections, no nothing, in order to go back to normal. We have an entire country. Five million people planet, in that country. It should five be million people that is testing this proposition and that is getting praised by the people that we listen to, that we listen to, to tell us how we should behave here in the United States. Let us have a dictatorial regime that says you can't go out of your house because there is one case of COVID. There. I have now finished my rant. Can you guys please take up and rant a little and then we'll Well, the only thing I'll say is that I I know, I'm sure personally, New Yorkers who would approve of that approach. Um, There is is a, a, uh, once again, a sort of marketplace for that. It's not just... um, the, the the public health officials that we can't stand. There's a, there's a segment of the population that has been trained into into that kind of uh, mindset and would absolutely adore it. But it is civilization destroying. Absolutely. It is, it is suicidal. Civil, civilizational euthanasia. There's no way you can be a functional society if you're if you're blocking down all social and economic activity because of a disease that really is genuinely survivable for 95% of the population and most with vaccinations, most, if not all without vaccinations, the occasional case that, you know, is probably the immunocompromised notwithstanding. And also it's a, it's a, it's a mindset that uh, parades as being uh, compassionate and caring, but it's actually um, shockingly selfish. It is, it is about being personally scared to death of this thing and not, and not caring if you bring the entire thing down with you, as long as you don't get it. Well, you know, uh, Christine, to to conclude on the parents revolt point. So uh, there's all this polling data. And I think this is a serious and interesting question, right? So more than 70% of Americans uh, over the age of 18 are vaccinated. I think the number 74% have one shot, right? So, um, uh, and then there is this political question. It's like, when are they going to turn on the unvaccinated? Like, when is this conversation going to turn? And it's going to be, you know, you sit in your house or go get sick and die. I don't care. We've been saying that for weeks, by the way. So, you know, I, I this is not. Um, but there's another number here, which is that 69% or something asked in a poll whether or not they supported masking for children uh, say yes. Um, and what's interesting about this is that if you do the percentages, uh, they match up pretty precisely with the number of people who have children. In other words, people who don't have children, and I'm sure a lot of people who do have children, so let, let's just make this clear, but people who don't have children, if they have no, there's no, no skin off their back if kids have to wear masks eight hours a day. Of course they'll say yes, kids should wear masks. What do they care? They don't have kids. They're not dealing with the consequences of kids having masks on. Um, and so you have this weird thing where we're now getting cited poll data to support uh, masking of school children that involves people who literally don't have any role or life uh, or will suffer no consequences from the decision that is, is, is being made. 
Well, and the, and the media is really aiding and abetting a particular narrative about the masking of children. And I think the, the Biden administration finds this helpful cover because they are, by, by focusing so much on masks, the, the most recent thing this week is that now the education department is going to invoke civil rights uh, uh, violations in order to come down hard on local school districts and particularly on governors in red states like Abbott in Texas and DeSantis in Florida who have said you cannot have these mask mandates. They're not saying you can't mask. It's a different thing. There's a distinction that's very important to draw that the media is deliberately obfuscating. These these mandates say, uh, you know, you, what they're saying is that a school district can't impose a mandate on everyone. What they're saying is if you want to wear a mask, you can wear a mask, but you don't have to wear a mask. It's parents are allowed to make the decision and the risk assessment for their kids. Now, the school districts are pushing back. You know, Hillsborough County in Florida, Miami-Dade in Florida have said, no, we want a mask mandate for everyone. There's mask mandates in D.C. public schools for high schools where all the kids are eligible for vaccination. But this is an acknowledgement by public health officials in the Biden administration that they're never going to get a certain percentage vaxxed. So what they will do is ask the rule followers who've already been vaxxed to do this masking because that shows, you know, that's something they can control. That's something that they can force people to do. Some some districts are making it part of their dress code, for example, to get around uh, the elimination of mask mandates. But it's all a conversation that's happening on one end of the spectrum. And nobody's talking about what you said, John, which is that most of these kids are not at risk for hospitalization or death. Most of the all of the adults are eligible for vaccination. It, we are we are making policy decisions in this regard based on a vanishingly small minority of people and the loudest voices in the room. And neither of those groups really speak for certainly for most parents and, and certainly for most Americans. The polling, they did this in 2020, where they would poll the general population about keeping schools closed. And everybody wanted schools closed. What a, um, you know, Mirabile Dick too. But it turns out that when you poll actual parents, the numbers were nowhere near, I mean, they weren't overwhelmed no, they were reversed. to get people in schools, but usually a plurality or even a majority supported. No, there were some Even in the depths of the pandemic. There was a majority. It was a majority. I think it was, you know, It depends. I don't remember 59%. national polls, but local polls. Occasionally yeah. you have majorities or at least pluralities. Right. Well, and the fear right. with the masking, honestly, is that if you poll parents now, look, if, if I was polled today, I would say, I don't care. Just as long as you get them back in school, they haven't had school for over a year. So I think a lot of people polled right now about the masks are like, we know Delta's going on. We, we just we just want them to be able to have a normal school year. It's been too long. If you if Delta, you know, get goes through its course, which we're already on the downswing for that. Once those numbers change, I think you repoll. My concern is that the masking will remain even when the data in the cases decline, because we saw that happen last year with school reopening. Crushing morosity for the win yet again. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Noah and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.